0: The big problems with classic hypothesis testing are well known. And yet, a huge majority of statistical analyses are still conducted this way. So why is it? Why are things so hard to change? Can you even do, and should you do, hypothesis testing in the Bayesian framework? Well, I guess if you wanted to name this episode in a very Marvelian way, it would be base factors against the p-values of madness. But we won't do that it wouldn't be appropriate. Would it? Anyways, in this episode, I'll talk about all these very light and consensual topics with Eric-Jan Wagenmakers, a professor at the Psychological Methods Unit of the University of Amsterdam. For almost two decades, E.J. has staunchly advocated the use of Bayesian inference in psychology. In order to lower the bar for the adoption of Bayesian methods, he is coordinating the development of JASP, an open source software program that allows practitioners to conduct state of the art Bayesian analysis with their mouse. The one from your computer, of course, not the one from Disney. EJ has also written a children's book on Bayesian inference with the title Bayesian Thinking for Toddlers. Rumor has it that he's also working on a multi volume series for adults, but shh, that's a secret. EJ's lab publishes regularly on a host of Bayesian topics, so check out his website, particularly when you're interested in Bayesian hypothesis testing. And the same goes for his blog, by the way, Bayesian Spectacles. Wait, wait, what's that? Oh, right, EJ is telling me that he plays chess, squash, and that, most importantly, he enjoys watching arm wrestling videos on YouTube. Yet another proof that, yes, you can find Everything on YouTube. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 61, recorded April 25, 2022. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alexandra. You can follow me on Twitter at alex_andora, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbaystats.com. Let's Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com/learnbaystats. Starting at three euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreoncom stats. Thanks a lot, folks! I'm very grateful for any support you can bring.
1: Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? Is someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen Maybe cause my likeness lowers expectations Expectations of tight rhyming, how would I know, unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men, dropping placebo-controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman.
0: Well, look at that. Today, I had the honor of welcoming Mr. Aubrey Clayton in the LBS family. Does this name ring a bell? Well, of course, Aubrey was my guest for episode 51, and he's most importantly, the author of the acclaimed Bernoulli's Fallacy Boot. So, thanks a lot for supporting the show on Patreon, Aubrey. That means a lot to me, and that really helps the show a long way. And if you want to join Aubrey and dozens of fellow agents in the LBS Slack channel, well, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash learn Okay, now let's make some enemies by talking about hypothesis testing with EJ Wagenbeckers eric Jan Wagenmakers, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Happy to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm very happy that you're there. A lot of listeners actually have asked me for an episode with you. And also I'm happy because I had one of your co-authors, Michael Lee, here on a previous episode, which I think was episode 31. And of course, this will be the show notes. And a big thank you to one of my close friends and associates and partner in crimes, Thomas Vicky, who made the introduction with you. So Thomas, if you hear us, uh, vielen Dank. EJ, I have a lot of questions for you, so let's dive right in. And as usual, we'll start with your origin story. So yeah, how did you come to the stats and data world? And was it a serious or a straight path? That's interesting. So I've
2: my background is in experimental psychology. So that's not directly related to the stats and data world, I guess. But my advisor at the time at the University of Groningen was uh, Ritzke de Jong. And he already did some quantitative modeling of response times mm-hmm. in the speeded cognitive tasks. And when I did my PhD, this was with Jeroen Rijmakers, And also one of my advisors at the time was Rich Schiffrin, And this is mathematical psychology. Later on, I did a postdoc with uh, Roger Redcliff in the same field, so mathematical psychology. So this is a field where some people, uh, you know, uh, find it a contradiction in terms, but it's really not. <laughs> Every field has its mathematical subdiscipline. So we, in mathematical psychology, we basically build models and we try to understand human cognition using those models. So mm. m- how memory works, how decision making works, how attention works. So um, sometimes you hear people complain that there is no theory in psychology but this is because they haven't checked out the journal of mathematical psychology and when they check out that journal they will quickly realize that maybe there's too much theory in psychology i should also mention the new journal computational brain and behavior that uh, that is published by uh, Uh, I think it's published by Springer, but it is uh, affiliated with the uh, Society for Mathematical Psychology. So once you're in mathematical psychology, then the step to the stats and data world is really, really small. Yeah, I guess
0: that. How in the first place did you end up in mathematical psychology, actually? Well... That's an interesting story. So what I did is
2: I was an undergraduate student with Ritzke de Jong. And at some point I asked Ritzke, I said, what should I do with my life? Should I maybe become a computer programmer? And he said, no, you're not trained to be a programmer. There's other people who can do this much better. So why don't you just continue in academia? And I thought, okay, I'll apply to a few positions. And one of those positions was with Jeroen Reimakers. And I remember I did a job interview. Because in the Netherlands, when you're a PhD student, it's it's more like a real job, right? So you get a salary and, and there's also a, a job interview. And I remember also uh, Peter Molina was part of that committee. And he kept asking me, do you know this? It was a particular mathematical procedure. And I would say, no, I don't know this. And he would ask another question about another procedure. And I, again, I would have to say, no, I don't know this. And this, this kept going on. So I thought, like,
0: this isn't going very well. <laughs> Kept going on for four hours, and I don't know why I was <laughs> still in the meeting.
2: Yeah, uh, remember that when I w- travelled back in the train, I felt really kind of depressed because <laughs> the topic I thought at the time was memory modeling, and I thought this is so incredibly boring. Should I really dedicate the next four years of my life to this incredibly boring topic? I'm not sure. But my but my advisor Ritske from Groningen said Jeroen Reimakers is the best psychologist in the Netherlands, and so I thought, well, if he's pretty good. And a lot of people uh, are apparently into memory modeling. Maybe it won't be so bad. So I accepted the position, and then of course within a week, once you you know start to read the literature, you get interested in the topic, and it didn't turn out to be quite as boring as I anticipated. So I was quite happy that I uh, that I ended up uh, accepting that position.
0: Hmm. Oh yeah, so like you had a you had quite a bad prior. You updated it quite fastly. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. That was a good posterior. then. Cool. So quite random actually quite a bit of randomness yeah
2: yeah but i did think that at the time i already had a a preference for you know making theories exact and quantitative and maybe that's my i'm not sure whether it's my background in chess that mm. did that for me but i've always been sort of a little allergic to just verbal explanations mm-hmm. so that's certainly something i appreciated at the
0: time mm. oh yeah oh yeah i can definitely relate to that that was the thing that I didn't like in political science, for instance, uh, especially international relations, where it's was like, how do you test?
2: Yeah, how do you test? The yeah, exactly.
0: hypothesis, and like, if you cannot test your ideas, like, is it really scientific, Right. Um, yeah. or is it just speculation? Which is interesting, but not really in the same realm. Yeah. yeah, okay, no, I understand. And so, like, what about today? Like, how do you define the work you're doing? and the topics that you are particularly interested in.
2: Right. So I would say I'm still interested in cognitive modeling, mm-hmm. although, of course, the, the models you're interested in, they change over time. I, I did mm. memory modeling with, uh, with Jeroen Reimakers and with uh, Rich Schifrin. But when you're a postdoc with Roger Radcliffe, you do response time modeling, and I still enjoy that. But I've done some work on reinforcement learning models as well. I still do this, but I would say, in general, my work is as a... Laplace uh, said, common sense expressed in numbers. So it's a bit of philosophy of science. It's also Bayesian inference, of course, and it's open source software for teaching and practicing uh, statistics. And uh, in the future, I might study why smart people believe weird things, to quote Michael Shermer on this. So I'm just so puzzled, and I think everybody is, about the popularity of uh, conspiracy theories, religion, frequency statistics, that sort of thing.
0: Nice. Well, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> I hope I'll be able to invite you back on the podcast to talk about that once you have some, some interesting things to to talk about with us. So like you, you said that basically you are working about all those things which are related to basically the way we think and maybe not why, but how we end up thinking the way we think, Mm -hmm. which like, I I think we can put under the umbrella term of cognitive modeling. Mm -hmm. So can you define that field for uh, listeners and why would base be useful in that field? Right.
2: Well, in cognitive modeling, usually what we try to do is we try to come up with one formal model. So not a verbal explanation, but Something that makes actually concrete predictions, a a formal model for a particular kind of phenomenon related to cognition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's lots of cognitive activities that we engage in attention, memory, decision making, those kinds of things. And I think one of the promises of this style of modeling is that it allows you to capture more than a single phenomenon. There's this wonderful paper, You Can't Ask 20 Questions. To nature and win and from the 70s and in that paper it's discussed how uh, particular fields tend to focus on these binary yes no questions and then after they try to answer that question the answer is usually we really don't know or it depends and then they move to the next question and one of the hopes with these models is that you can instantiate particular principles in these models, and these principles allow you not just to account for one particular phenomenon, but for a range of interrelated phenomena. And I think that's really when you, when a model does that well, then you have the feeling that you've really learned something about how that particular part of cognition works. Hmm. So it can tie together, if it's done well, tie together different phenomena. Right? Or sometimes you have a relatively simple model, like I would say Redcliffe's diffusion model that says inform- small bits of information, small bits of evidence are accumulated over time un- until a threshold and then a response is initiated. Mm-hmm. And that is a simple idea, right? That you can say that in one sentence, but it accounts for a surprising diversity of benchmark phenomena. I really think that's one of the success stories in the in the field
0: of mathematical psychology. Mm, yeah. It's just like trying to get to the smallest building block of how then we can build more complex models of how people relate to topics and how they think about them. Right,
2: right. Mm. But it's also sometimes with a simple model, Mm -hmm. you can actually account for complex behavior. Mm. So the complex behavior is actually maybe the result of of, uh, relatively simple basic principles, such as in uh, the case of the Redcliffe
0: diffusion model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's something I was thinking about here these days. because So I'm, I'm reading quite a lot these days about physics, because somehow, like the nerd in me decided it was fascinating. Yeah, so like there is uh, and, and I found that interesting point in a book where you can, there are a lot of phenomenon that you can model at the macro level pretty easily, but you're not able to model the micro level decisions, right? But yes. At the macro level it's actually quite easy to model because you're able to model the sum of the behavior but not the individual behaviors yeah like
2: molecules in a gas or something uh, fluid yeah. dynamics that kind of thing
0: yeah exactly or you can see that even in ecno- in economics where you've got a pretty good idea of what an economy would do if there is deflation for instance but you're not able to predict what any individual will do right yes but you can still have a very useful model at the macro level and that's why some models are useful, because right. you don't need to know like the exact small parts to get the aggregate,
2: yeah, 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 absolutely. And I've uh, toyed around with uh, this golden board, right, where these little marbles, they drop down and they hit a a pellet and they go either left or right, and they hit a different pellet, go left or right, right? And so theoretically, they should just land straight on the next pellet and then neatly go left or right. And then mm-hmm. you get this, when you look at the the whole population of those pellets, it forms sort of a neat normal distribution approximately. But when you create a video of that process, you see that it's not neat at all, right? The little marbles, they bounce off the pellets and they go in all sorts of directions. But still, the behavior of the group is still very regular. It's Hmm. still that normal distribution, even though any single unit is, is behaving quite erratically. Yeah,
0: and I think that's so that's so unintuitive, right? Uh, like to at least a lot of people who don't deal with models, because it's something I often have, for instance, when I talk about electoral forecasting models with people, it's like a common like thing people have against models is like, yeah, but you cannot model people. Therefore, you cannot model an election. and. It's like, yeah, actually, you can. <laughs> it's like That doesn't mean that you're not original and you don't have your own, you know, free will and don't make your own choices. But just as a species, as an aggregate, we are actually quite predictable. And so you can make those kind of predictions. So, but I find that interesting because it's also, I think it's a kind of protection mechanism, you know, where it's like people saying, you know, but I am original and I'm like, I matter. Yeah. It's true, but just like when you put you look at the aggregate, it's easier to model whereas it's true that it's extremely complicated to model exactly what one person
2: will do but but it is a little paradoxical right that you don't know really how a single person works and then you add more people that you don't know how they work and but then together when you combine all that ignorance, yeah. somehow you are now able to, to
0: make good predictions. Yeah, it's so it's so counterintuitive. And I love that that exactly the kind of phenomenon I love. <laughs> okay, that's so awesome. So I'm already drifting off. Uh, so let me let me go back to uh, actually a, a question I ask every guest, which is, do you remember how you first got introduced to patient methods? And today, is it's something that you really frequently use? When you did that
2: podcast with my long-term collaborator, Michael Lee. Mm -hmm. So Michael indicated that he was introduced to Bayesian methods by uh, James Young and Mark Pitt. And I think the same happened to me. And in particular, they have a 1997 paper on Occam's razor in Mm -hmm. uh, Psychonomic Bulletin and Review. And I think it's still one of the best introductions to the advantages of the Bayesian approach. Mm. And so why it resonated with me, and I think with a lot of people in the math psych community at the time, is that, that in that field you're often comparing different models of human behavior that are structurally different. So it's not the case that one is neatly nested, a special case of a more complex one, in which case you could use like p-values or something, mm-hmm. but but they're just very different models. So it's not easy to point to one as being the null hypothesis. Say so So with these non-nested models, Now, how are you going to compare them? Well, then very quickly you move to, well, maybe we should compare them based on their predictive performance. And then then it's only a very, very small step to Bayes. And in in general, the field of mathematical psychology has never really used p-values very much. That field has always been very open to alternative inference procedures. Uh, Not only Bayes, by the way, but also what I view as related methods such as minimum description
0: length. Mm, I see, yeah. And so, so it's something from what you say, it's something that actually you started using pretty pretty fast in your in your career, or did you have a, a switch well, at some point?
2: Yeah, well, it was certainly the case that my first papers definitely reported p-values, <laughs> and it was also definitely the case that I didn't really know what I was doing, or you could argue, and do you really ever know exactly what you're doing when you do statistics, I'm not sure. But Mm. at the time, I definitely didn't know what I was doing, and I was just doing what everybody was doing, Mm. which is, I think, what most the case for most people. But then after I sort of caught the Bayesian bug, I switched. I think the real switch happened when I was in Roger Radcliffe's lab when I was a postdoc. And since that time, I don't think I've reported a p-value, maybe if reviewers insist. I may report it in addition to a Bayesian analysis,
0: but mm, uh, that
2: happens very, rare, very rarely, I should say. Mm,
0: so that's good. And that actually anticipates on my on my next question, which would be, so like you use that very frequently, but how frequently Bayesian stats used in your field in general?
2: In mathematical psychology, I would say Bayesian methods are very common, mm. maybe even more common than using a straightforward p-value. Mm. But in experimental psychology, yeah, their, their base is still utterly dominated by the p is smaller than 0.05 approach. Definitely, mm-hmm. so it's not like in you know I don't know machine learning or even uh, statistics proper, right? Because statistics itself has a uh, presents a mix of methodologies, but their base is actually quite popular. It's certainly not used in less than you know three percent of the papers, which is what I roughly estimate is is the rate of. Bayesianism in
0: experimental psychology at the moment. Hmm. So actually quite quite interesting, because then that means that, yeah, this kind of thinking is pretty pretty well widespread in the field. Do you have any idea why? <laughs> you mean
2: why in mathematical psychology it's, uh, it's relatively widespread? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, I think in mathematical psychology, people have always looked on statistical inference in general as something an activity that's almost a little dirty. You build your models, you have them make predictions, you have strong tests for those theories. And I forgot who said it, maybe it was Rutherford who said something like, if your experiment needs statistics, you should do a different experiment. And I think something of that nature also holds in mathematical psychology, right? If your model needs statistics, you should develop a different model. For instance, in, I could also just say, uh, like they do in psychophysics, if we, if we measure our participants on the kilo trial levels, thousands of trials, then you know your standard errors are so small that you can't see them when you when you plot the mean, right? Mm-hmm. because the, the dot that represents the mean just eclipses the standard errors. And so in that case, you can just basically look at the data. So there's always been a sort of disdain for p-values because they people felt they didn't they just simplify something complex into a binary decision that that's just a little removed from what you're trying to do with your modeling right you're trying to understand human cognition make predictions test those predictions but yeah those p-values didn't didn't really fit the
0: bill i think i see yeah and so is it also related to maybe the kind of data that you have? Like how big is the data basically in the, in the world and the kind of, of models you work with?
2: That does differ a bit. Mm-hmm. In psychophysics, they do have a lot of data per participant, but they often have very few participants, right? So it's common to see like four four participants, the author themselves, the wife of the author, and two friends, say. So, uh, But then thousands and thousands and thousands of trials because you really need to be... Uh, devoted to stick with the experiment. But I don't think that in mathematical psychology it's necessarily the case that there's like so so much data that, for instance, all your p-values will be statistically significant regardless of what's going on. Mm-hmm. That is more a recent trend, I think, where people started to use uh, real-world data and big data. And then you have that, but that's not traditionally what uh, what is going on in, in mathematical psychology. I would say in mathematical psychology you usually have a little bit more data, than in experimental psychology because you're trying to test your models. So you often need, instead of just two conditions, you maybe want to have five or six because you want to have an entire range of data points for your model. Mm-hmm. So in that sense there's often more data in mathematical psychology. But I wouldn't uh, point to that as the cause for why p-values are, are used so little in mathematical psychology. I just think maybe the questions that people ask or what they're trying to do is just a little bit more interesting and you can't really Put that
0: into a into a p value in a meaningful oh. way. Oh, okay, I see. So it's like the model and the generative process that you're trying to model and the story that the model is telling is actually very important. Yeah, exactly. even more than just knowing whether it's significant or not. Exactly. Ah. If you, for instance, if one model
2: predicts an increase of some of something with a particular factor, mm-hmm. and another model predicts a decrease. Then you know you plot the data and you see whether there's an increase or a decrease, and you know at that point you don't even really need a p value. Mm. So if it's so, in that sense, I can actually agree a little bit with R- Rutherford, right? If you don't, if you if it's so, if it's unclear that you actually need to calculate a p value in order to make your claim, maybe you should just collect a bit more data mm. to make it unambiguous.
0: Okay, awesome. I feel like we've already talked a bit about when I wanna want ask you now, but so I'm gonna ask you. So. For like, I mean, in this episode, we're more going to talk about stats and, and the methods. Again, I'll refer listeners to episode 31 with Michael Lee for examples of, uh, of applications of Bayes uh, to cognitive science. And so what do you think more generally? Because here you said that in mathematical psychology, uh, Bayesian sets are, are quite well used, but that in other fields in psychology they are still very in the minority. So I'm wondering, what do you think causes researcher to stick to non-Bayesian methods in those cases? So that's interesting.
2: And that's also one of the things that I would like to study, right? When I said before, uh, why mm-hmm. do smart people believe weird things? <laughs> there are very smart people who still stick to non-Bayesian methods. And I just I just look at it and I'm like, why would you do that? Because, you know, you you have a lot to offer. Why would you waste your mental energy on this? It's very interesting. It's a very interesting question. In an uh, interview with Dennis Lindley, my Bayesian hero, Sir Harold Jeffries, Mm -hmm. was asked whether he knew any scientist that actually used Jeffries' procedures. Mm. And so, I should point out, for a few decades, Harold Jeffries was essentially the world's only Bayesian, or at least the only Bayesian whose main goal was practical data analysis instead of philosophizing. And Jeffries was also a famous geophysicist. And for instance, he discovered through mathematical analysis that the core of the earth was liquid. So anyway, Jeffreys was asked whether he knew any scientist that actually used his own Jeffries procedure. So Jeffries says, no. Right. So imagine you're on the top of your field. You've written books, papers about this particular method and you don't know anybody who's actually using it. So then the follow-up question, of course, is why? And then Jeffrey's answered with one word, laziness. Hmm. And I think that's essentially correct. Maybe you could also say it's akrasia, so a lack of willpower. Mm -hmm. So maybe researchers suspect that Bayes buys them more, but they're kind of reluctant to invest the time and energy to learn the approach, which actually by itself may be a Bayesian thing to do. Right, so you have two actions you could take: learn Bayes or not learn Bayes, and then you have utilities associated with mm-hmm. those actions. Yeah. Right. And so your utility for not learning Bayes may actually be higher than for learning Bayes, and so then it's the optimal Bayesian solution not to learn Bayes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Lindley offered himself in a different paper. Lindley offered a different hypothesis. So he said students are not taught Bayesian statistics. So if you're not taught Bayesian statistics, then when you become a researcher, you will just practice what you were taught. And when you have to teach, you teach the same method that you have practiced, which is the one you were taught. And so you perpetuate this cycle. So to break through this cycle is, is very difficult.
0: Yeah, for sure. Because I feel like you also have to change the the incentives. Because like also why aren't researchers interested in like learning new? Methods like, like, in the end, the like the fact that the method is sound or not doesn't really matter, and what matters is really the result. And so, if you have a very result-oriented process more than a process-oriented process, right? Yeah. Well, doesn't really matter. Like, it, it's the same thing for open source incentives, right? I feel like the research world could be an incredible source of open source contributions and advances, but just like there is no incentive to do. Real yeah, absolutely,
2: open absolutely. And I'm biased, of course, because I also yeah. develop open source software. But if you, it's kind of, it's really strange that there's really no good grant support for developing open source software in in, in science, which is yeah. ridiculous, right? So, so the. What we have, we get because people feel like, hey, this is good for the world and I should really do it, but it's not really rewarded or supported. So, yeah, that's really annoying. I hope it will change in the future. Who
0: knows? Yeah, because it's pure altruism and that's not not great to only rely on that.
2: (laughs) Right. But to, it's not pure altruism. with all of those things, right? Altruism. I mean, you sure. get compliments from people who use it, yeah, and it makes you feel like you're contributing something to the world. So maybe that's maybe altruism doesn't exist, right? Yeah, but, but, oh yeah. yeah. So well, it's not. It, it doesn't directly buy you something. That's clear. No. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No. I love that. That reminds me of the like. There is an episode of Friends where Phoebe tries to convince Joey that pure altruism. Uh, exists. So that gives birth to a lot of interesting experiments. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't to... know that episode. But oh I... yeah, it's really good. Like in one of them, like she lets um, a bee bite her, and then sting her, no, sting her. Mm-hmm. And and then Joey says, but you know, the bee died after, after beating you. <laughs> and so like, Then she's like, Oh no, oh my God, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> Hilarious. So, yeah, definitely go go there and and watch that, uh, listeners. Also, uh, to compensate, of course, I did the the paper you mentioned, So You Can't Play 20 Questions with Nature and Win. So it's by By Alan Newell. Newell. Right. Yeah. So I added I that in the show notes. You'll tell me if it's the wrong link, EJ, but I think it's the right one.
2: Yeah, there's very few papers with comparable titles, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I actually didn't know about, about it, but uh, that looks super interesting. Yeah, I think
2: it actually inspired sort of these uh, very generic frameworks like ACT-R, you know, that are sort hmm. of these uh, production system, production rule systems where they basically try to explain not just one element of cognition, but basically all of cognition. Mm. That was kind of a formal argument against this paper, I would say.
0: Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the or not an argument the
2: against the paper, but a but a but a consequence of the paper.
0: Yeah, yeah, And the first sentences of the paper are terribly interesting. I am a man who is half and half. Half of me is half distressed and half confused. Half of me is quite content and clear on where we are going. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I feel I still think it's a really uh, uh, that paper hasn't lost much of its relevance today. I think mm. it would be interesting to see yes, to what sure. extent it would still apply.
0: Yeah, actually, so related to that question, so like here we talked about about like yeah, changing incentives and so on, but more generally, how do you think, do you have some ideas of how we could change that and like reward people for researchers who are not staying in the status quo and not being lazy, right. Right, being able... And willing to experiment more with new methods? Yeah. Well, that's
2: an important question. And I think, again, it, uh, like we discussed, it centers on utilities and incentives. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a silver bullet solution, but I do think there's a number of components that are really important. So now I'm going to cast this specifically in terms of Bayesian methods, but I think it holds for any new methodology you propose. So I think first it needs to be very clear how Bayesian inference can actually help the researcher, how it can be helpful in concrete pragmatic scenarios. Because if it's not helpful, you're not buying anything with the methodology and your utility will always tell you stay with the status quo. Yeah, for sure. Now, secondly, we desperately need more introductory textbooks on Bayesian inference. So we've, of course, if you, Google an introduction to Bayesian statistics, you'll find count, you know, numerous books. But what is meant is really an introduction to Bayesian statistics for professors in mathematics at MIT. Right? That's not the group of people that we need to talk to. Right? We need to talk to first-year students in psychology or medicine because we're talking about cognitive science now, but the fact that people are still using p-values in fields such as medicine right, where we're talking life and death, right, that's really upsetting to me. Mm. And the third component I would say, and that also relates to utilities, is that Bayesian inference needs to be easy, almost trivially easy to execute in software. Mm. So, yeah, my group at UVA has tried to contribute to each of those uh, components. So Mm. in a way, you know, you're trying to level the playing field because, you know, with, with P values are easy to obtain. Yeah. And so if you propose something else but you make it difficult, then that's not starting off right, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So yeah, so these two parts actually that's great because that's where I wanted to take the episode. So yeah, actually let's talk about that part about the why would that be useful for you? Like why would base be useful in your like in your research if you're a researcher? And I so mm-hmm. to take concrete cases like what because it's you what you need to do is convince them that it's useful. So what do you win? What do you lose when you switch switch from the latter to the former? And here, I know that you can talk about the differences between patient estimation and testing. So can you Yeah, can you tell us what you have to say here? And that how that could help the things that we just talked about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when Bayesian inference was born, uh, basically uh, Pierre-Simon Laplace first introduced it. I mean, mean, Thomas Bayes was first, but Pierre-Simon Laplace really independently invented it and popularized it. So that approach by Laplace was purely an estimation approach. So you assume a model, you assign a, a continuous prior distribution to a parameter, and you update that distribution to a posterior as the data come in. But Jeffries argued that in some cases that estimation approach violates common sense and contradicts accepted scientific procedure so essentially the estimation approach does not incorporate an occam's razor so the idea that you adopt a complex model only when the data provide evidence in its favor in 19 19- 21 around 1919, 1921, 1923, Jeffries and his collaborator Dorothy Rinch argued for a specific case. So they said, let's consider a general law. So apples grow on apple trees. And if you want to assess that general law, it requires a testing mindset. That general law requires a separate prior mass, which is basically prior mass on a point. If you don't do this, then and you just apply, say, Laplace's rule of succession, that Laplace's rule of succession from from his estimation approach, that implies that if you only observe a sufficiently large number of apples, you can be absolutely certain that at some point you will find an apple that does not grow on an apple tree. And Jeffries thought and Rinch thought this was preposterous. So the scientific procedure is we start with the simplest model that accounts for the data, Mm -hmm. and we only adopt more complex models when we must. So the way uh, Rinch and Jeffries dealt with this is they said that simple model that needs to have a separate prior probability and then you need to see whether it is basically outpredicted by a more complex model. So in a sense what Rinch and Jeffries did is they generalized Laplace's ideas to not just have es- estimation but also testing. And I find it ironic that some Bayesians nowadays they advocate an estimation only approach and they are basically regressing back to the original position of Laplace. But I'm not sure that they're really aware of the work by Rinch and Jeffries and the arguments that Rinch and Jeffries put forward for adding the testing scenario to the estimation scenario. But coming back to the practical relevance here for Mm -hmm. scientists, so that testing approach that is very congruent with scientific procedure, stick to the simple model, until the data force you to adopt a complex model or if you want to make a claim as a scientist i have found evidence for x mm-hmm. then then you need to show that evidence right which is what the testing approach gives you but the estimation approach doesn't it gives it indirectly when you eyeball the prior and the posterior distribution but only indirectly
0: i see so the what you call the estimation approach here is like only looking at models and not at this statistics? The estimation approach would be
2: looking only at a single model. Right? Ah, okay. So, for instance, you could say um, if extrasensory perception exists, mm-hmm. I predict it to be relatively small. So you assign some continuous prior, very close to, say, uh, chance performance, mm-hmm. and then you see the data and then you update that prior distribution to a posterior distribution. Mm-hmm. right? But in that estimation approach, there is no room for a different hypothesis that says, extrasensory performance does not exist. And that you have in the testing framework where you say, okay, let's take our null hypothesis that we're just looking at noise and we're contrasting that to an alternative hypothesis that says something is present. And now we want to see what is the evidence for or against these models.
0: But if your prior is that nothing is present and that it's noise and then you update your posterior... Why is that different? So we have
2: two priors here. There's Mm -hmm. the priors on the models themselves. right? So how likely is it that nothing is there? Mm -hmm. And then we have the priors on the parameters within a model. Mm -hmm. So given that it exists, how large do you think it is? Mm -hmm. And so what Jeffrey's argued is he said, first we need to know whether we're just looking at noise or something real. And then after we're convinced that we're looking at something real, then... We can look within the, that model at how large it is, right? So we first have the testing approach to tell us whether we're looking at noise or whether there's something real. And then after we know that it's real, we look at how large it is. That was Jeffrey's idea. I think the if you try to advocate a testing, an estimation-only approach, I predict difficulties in the not only in the review process, but also difficulties writing up your argument. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people use this estimation-only approach. It's also popular now or more popular than it was before within frequentist statistics, right? The new statistics, they call it. Mm. I've seen these papers where people, people are then allowed to give a confidence interval, but they're not allowed to say whether it overlaps with zero. Because once you say it overlaps with zero, now you're testing and they don't want to test. So then you... But it's, of course, what you want to say as a researcher. You want to say, like, look, it's real, right? But you're not allowed to say that. And so you have these very convoluted papers that basically try to beat around the bush. I think ultimately for most endeavors, we really can't do it without our test. Mm. You know, if you have a vaccine uh, efficacy or, mm-hmm. you know, did we find the Higgs boson or, you know, wh- whatever you like very quickly, it boils, boils down to a test. Not everything I think it's unwise to completely... I think they both have a place, both estimation and testing. And sometimes I'm in the situation where I can only do testing, and I really enjoy that, because I don't have to be so precise about my prior distributions. I'm not assessing predictive performance. I'm just updating my prior distribution. So when I want to know something about inter-rater reliability, then the the hypothesis that inter-rater reliability is zero is of absolutely no interest. So I'm not in a testing situation. I just want to measure how large is inter-rater reliability. Mm -hmm. That's relatively easy. And I think also, because it's so easy, it's very popular. As soon as you start to do testing, now the priors matter, right? Because testing is done by comparing predictive performance for competing models. But where do the predictions come from? Well, partly from the prior. So yes, the prior matters because... That's where your predictions come from. But it also means that if you have different priors, you have different predictions and a different end result. Mm -hmm. And that makes people very uncomfortable. So I understand that it makes them uncomfortable. But ultimately, you know, this is, uh, we have that Danish proverb, right? Uh, Predictions are difficult, especially when
0: it's about the future. Mm -hmm. That's just the reality we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I know for sure. I completely completely agree on that. I'm trying to understand um the... the practical differences between the two approaches. Because like, for instance, so what you're saying is that if I have, for instance, on vaccine Mm -hmm. efficiency, we have a model, let's say in the model, we have a parameter which estimates the efficiency. Mm -hmm. So my prior here could be uninformed, well, weakly Mm -hmm. informative. So like, it could be somewhat negative. It could be positive, so maybe it's asymmetrical, and uh, maybe mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. expect more positive mm-hmm. effects than mm-hmm. negative, but mm-hmm. it overlaps zero. Mm-hmm. And so are you saying that when I run that model and then I update, I get an updated prior on that efficiency, yeah. this is not sufficient to say whether there is an effect or not, and exactly. what the magnitude of this effect and the direction is? Well,
2: you want to include, so, so I would agree it's, it's that's not sufficient, because mm-hmm. for many situations, we want to put in We want to take into account the null hypothesis that the vaccine that you test simply is not active. It simply doesn't latch on to the biological process at all. And in fact, we have seen in this whole epidemic several sort of cures that turned out to be bogus. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't that the case that they helped a little bit. It was just that they didn't really attack the relevant biological process at all. Yeah. Right, so, there was absolutely nothing going on. <clears throat> now, okay, you can, have a, you can have a conversation. Is it nothing or is it minuscule? But And you cannot measure it. I'm happy to use nothing as a mathematically convenient approximation
0: yeah, yeah. to minuscule. Okay, so I think I understand. So, what you're saying is that with the model I was talking about, you would be able to say whether there is an effect, if it's negative or positive, and what is the uncertainty on that magnitude... But you cannot really say that the effect is completely null or really like, exactly. close to null. Exactly. So you can't also a question like,
2: now we have data, to what extent do we have evidence that the vaccine doesn't work? Mm-hmm. Right. So evidence in favor of the null. It's very difficult to get that when you, when you don't have a null. I see. When you use the estimation approach, you're basically saying, this, I am absolutely certain that this vaccine has an effect. It may be positive, it may be negative, it may be large, it may be small, but Mm. it absolutely has an effect, right? Because the density is in a continuous prior.
0: But if the posterior overlaps zero, actually, there is the case where there is no effect at all, but you cannot really say that because you can still say, oh, maybe there is an effect, but we don't know.
2: Right. Well, if it overlaps with zero, you could still say, well, we still, if it overlaps with zero, considerably overlaps with zero, you would still say, well, we still are, unsure whether it's positive or negative. Yeah. That's what you would say. But you could not speak yeah. to the relevance of the of, of zero itself.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I understand. How can you do that? Like, what would you do here?
2: Well, you, you include the hypothesis that the vaccine is completely ineffective and you give that hypothesis, that separate hypothesis. You consider it separately and you give it prior mass. So effectively, you could also view it as a mixture prior where mm-hmm. you have a, a slab a continuous slab and a spike at zero. That's I another see. way of looking at it.
0: Right. So it's like you have to add a parameter to the model where you actually model the case where it's zero. Yeah, that's how you could view it. Absolutely. I see. Yeah.
2: That's one way you could do it. And then it seems like a more complex approach than estimation. I mean the way Jeffries would see it, mathematically it boils down to the same thing, but the way Jeffries would see it is we basically start with the model with the spike. Mm-hmm. It says nothing is there. Mm-hmm. And now You make a claim that no, there is something going on. And you represent that by a slab, by continuous prior distribution. And now we're going to see which model predicts best. And if the null predicts best, there's no reason for us to consider this vaccine as
0: a useful treatment. So you you could have two different models, or you don't have to have everything in the same model then. Like you could Uh, have a model where you only test the null... And see the posterior predictions it may it makes, and then a model where you are in the case where okay we think there is an effect, but we don't know if it's positive or negative, and then see the posterior predictions, then and then compare those models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I see. Super interesting. Yeah. So, b- but basically, in the estimation
2: approach, what you can do is estimate: is it positive or negative? Mm-hmm. And you could see that as a testing yeah, activity yeah. as well. But this not everybody agrees on this, but. But in Jeffrey's philosophy, something becomes a testing problem when you assign separate prior mass to a to a specific point of interest, like zero. So then, when you have a spike in an otherwise on an otherwise continuous parameter, that would, in Jeffrey's uh, viewpoint, be a uh, testing scenario.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah, I was like curious about. Okay, I understand. How do you implement that in practice? So I think I have right. an idea. Yeah. So this is also
2: what makes it a little bit more involved or more difficult than the simple Laplacian estimation, because then you you have to put a prior in the Laplacian estimation, you have to put a prior on the parameter, but okay, after you've done that, the rest is just automatic. And it doesn't really matter what prior you put on, usually, because very quickly the data overwhelm it and you get virtually the same posterior distribution. But this is not the case for the testing scenario because of Occam's Razor, right? So if you say, for instance, I have a particular process, let's say the probability with which you solve particular problems correctly, and you put a uniform prior distribution on it from zero to one, right? And I have more knowledge, so like I said, it's, this is a bit more involved, the testing scenario is a bit more involved than the estimation scenario. In the estimation scenario, you have to assign a prior distribution to a continuous parameter. Yeah. And after you do that, you update and you're, and, and, that, and you're ready. And it also doesn't matter exactly what you do because the data quickly overwhelm the, the posterior. But in the, uh, sorry, the data quickly overwhelm the prior. But in the testing scenario, the prior does matter because it captures your predictions. And that means that Occam's Razor comes into play here. So if you have a very broad distribution and somebody else has more knowledge and has a very narrow distribution, Mm -hmm. then if the data are consistent with the narrow distribution, then that model made better predictions than the model that was very vague. If you are, say, betting on the next team to win the World Cup or something, Mm -hmm. and you're betting an equal amount on all the participating teams, then that is not a very good bet. And if you bet more money on the better teams, like, yeah. and a more, a more a tighter distribution, if one of those teams that you bet a lot of money on wins, you get much more of a return. Right? So the prior really matters for testing. So it requires more attention. Now You could do subjective things, uh, ba- or base it on prior literature, or there's also general rules. So that the procedure has relatively good performance, but it is a bit more—it uh, is a bit more involved, and it's that extra effort, and also maybe the the perceived fragility of the process that people don't like. Mm. Right? I do think it's overstated because yes, your prior matters, so you can show that if you use a ridiculous prior, yeah. you get ridiculous base vectors. But yeah. in my own experience, when I do real data analysis, I actually find that it's quite robust. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes it's not robust in the sense that one base factor gives you 10 million and the other one gives you 100,000. And then you could say, well, it's not robust, but really, you know, the evidence is overwhelmingly strong in either case. So I would argue that that's actually an example of it being robust. So you have to work really, really hard to come up with believable priors that give you meaningfully different results. So yeah. I usually don't manage to do that. But this is somewhat of a ghost, a boogeyman yeah. that is uh, you know, introduced whenever people think like, oh, maybe I should use a base factor. And people come like, oh, but what about the prior? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. yeah. And also same. in JASP, we try to make this really easy, right? Where we have good default settings and with a few clicks, you can obtain base factors and also mm-hmm.
0: see the prior and posterior distribution to get an idea of, uh, of what it means. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, you anticipated on my next question, which is like, okay, so what we talked about here was how do you do like, how do you add so this case of like the null hypothesis in your model, so you could add that in the same model as in the same pass, or you could have two models that then you compare the posterior predictions from and also you could compare, I guess, leave one out cross-validations and things like that and model comparison algorithms. Then you, you enter the let's say more classical Bayesian framework. And that that's cool because then once you have that you can get your all automated Bayesian workflow. How is that related though to base factors that you just mentioned? I- and because so yeah and also it's a topic I haven't coloured covered a, a lot on the show. So can you tell us what they are, how related they are to what you just talked, and right. also, at the end, how related they are to P, to classic frequentist P. Right, right, right. Right.
2: Well, first, comparison to cross-validation and these uh, posterior predictive P values and, and such. So the appeal of these alternative methods is also exactly, it's bo- kind of both their strength and their weakness. Because these alternative methods are usually not so sensitive to the prior distribution. So, a lot of people think this is great, but you're lo- also losing something. You're losing Occam's Razor when you don't bring the prior into play. Because the prior distribution, the width of the prior distribution, is one component of how narrow the predictions will be. And the more narrow the predictions, the, the more parsimonious the model. So, if you ignore the prior, the price you pay is you move away from a, an implementation of Occam's Razor. So. You can do something approximate. Of course, cross-validation is trying to do something, trying to respect Occam's razor in a way. And it's interesting, there's a paper by uh, Gneiting, I'm not sure whether I I think I pronounced it, Gneiting, I -hmm. would say, and Reftree. And they show that the base factor is a special case of cross-validation. But it's not your usual cross-validation where you always leave out, say, 20%. You leave out varying amounts. So that also means that sometimes you leave out everything, or almost everything, and that's when your priors become really important. So there is a... a uh, You can do cross-validation and obtain base factors, but it's a particular kind of cross-validation. So it does show you that there is a predictive interpretation to base factors, a cross-validation interpretation, but you have to do cross-validation in a particular way. And then with respect to p-values, I think the biggest difference is that with a p-value, you're looking at... Now, roughly speaking, right, you're looking at how surprising are these data mm-hmm. under the null hypothesis. In the Bayesian framework, you're, you're comparing how surprising are the data under the null hypothesis to how surprising are they under an alternative hypothesis, mm-hmm. which you then have to specify because we're talking about predictions here. Right? So yeah. you need to specify that alternative hypothesis so that it makes predictions. So it's inherently the base factor is a relative measure. And I would argue this is inherently what evidence means. It's evidence is inherently a relative concept. I think that's the basic. There's other differences as well. But I think that the absolute versus relative measure is the biggest one. right? So that also explains why if you have a p-value a p- that is just significant, that it doesn't actually mean very much for a base factor, for evidence. Because the data can be very or relatively surprising under the null But if they're also surprising under the alternative, then there isn't a lot of evidence. So basically the base sector looks at two sides of the coin.
0: I see, okay. So that's how it differs from the classic Frequentist P values. And I think you argue that it's more complete and appropriate in most of the cases. And how would you, so how does the interpretation work of the base factor? Right, well, there's different interpretations, right? So
2: the first interpretation of a, a base factor would be that it's the extent to which one hypothesis outpredicted the other. So this also means, of course, that you can have evidence for the null hypothesis because the null hypothesis can out the alternative hypothesis because it's more parsimonious, right? The same as what we mentioned with uh, putting more money on teams that are likely to win, instead of spreading your resources out across a wide range of options. right? There's a penalty associated with spreading out your resources too much. So this is why the null hypothesis can actually win and, uh, and gain support. So there's that interpretation. The other interpretation from Bayes' rule is that the base factor is the extent to which you should update your prior beliefs. So if your prior beliefs are 50-50, on the null versus the alternative, then the base factor comes in and you multiply your prior odds with the base factor and that gives you your posterior odds. Mm-hmm. So, this also means that the right we have the saying, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And that's directly instantiated in that equation. If you have a very un- implausible hypothesis, it needs a very strong base factor in order to overcome the prior skepticism. So it's also based in updating but on the level of hypotheses instead of parameters
0: I see okay okay and then there is the third avenue that I talked about which is like model comparisons and stuff like that and you also explained how you could include base factor in that in that framework okay uh, do you have actually a link to the paper you mentioned that um, allows to do that base factor and model comparison
2: well so i think one of the best papers still is the Muen and pitt one from 1997 mm-hmm. in a, a psychonomic uh, bulletin and review sure i can send you the link uh, uh later
0: yeah just add that to the google doc of the of the show notes yeah. and uh, yeah good like we'll in any be. case you can always add things to the google doc of the show notes until the the episode is uh, is out. right so right
2: i think that's a good one and uh I would say that there is also this uh, special issue on Bayesian inference in Psychonomic Bulletin and Review again in 2018, mm-hmm. which was, I think it was edited by Joachim van der Kerkhove, Jeff Rauder, and John Kroschke, mm-hmm. and I think that is a wonderful a special issue with tons of uh, papers, and also um, Joachim's student, uh, Alexander Etz, has, a, I think, a really a good talent for explaining Bayes clearly. Uh, I'm not sure whether he's been on the show, but if he hasn't, then it's definitely worth uh, inviting
0: him. I think. Oh yeah, well, oh yeah, well, if you can make introductions, that's I will the best. Yeah, thank you very much. That's always the the best, and definitely that sounds super interesting. I always love people who can explain things very clearly, and because that way I don't have to be smart, which in a way is smart, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. So time is running out. So I want to I want to ask you about the other part of your answer from before, which is, basically, we need to lower, decrease the hurdles for people to take a base. And we need to decrease the hurdles in that Bayesian workflow. And I'm guessing that's what you're trying to do also with JASP. very broad question. But What do you think are the biggest hurdles right now in the Bayesian workflow, especially in your field, of course, and how are you trying to improve that with the open open source software that you are working on, which is uh, JASP? Mm -hmm.
2: So it's interesting because I think the hurdles in the Bayesian workflow, that is actually an area that has seen maybe the most progress over the past decade. So originally, of course, we had Winbugs, and now JAGS and STAN. So with those, with those tools, it's, it's relatively straightforward to formulate and fit a wide range of Bayesian models. So oh, I think from that perspective, there's a huge steps been, have been made. Now, it's still challenging to compute base vectors. And my former student, uh, Quinton Gronau, and others have worked on bridge sampling as a convenient method and actually linked it to, to STAN, such that you can take a stand object and then execute this code and, and get an estimate of the marginal likelihood and the base factor. And I think that actually works pretty well. It's only a computational solution, of course. So if you have a, a very poor prior distribution, you will still get a, a result that that is either fragile or not representative, or however you want to call that. So it's still a challenge to formulate good prior distributions for hypothesis testing. But overall, I'm actually really positive about uh, Bayesian workflow, right? So I'm saying that once you're a Bayesian, life now looks much better and much more pleasant than 40 years ago. For sure. The problem is getting people to become Bayesians.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So how do we do that? Do you have the secret formula?
2: Well, definitely not. And I think this is something that really puzzles me, right? Why do people believe weird things? Why do people not become Bayesian. And again, the only thing I can come up with right now is kind of educational indoctrination or the utility argument. Or maybe they also perceive it to be just very difficult and beyond their abilities. Or So again, that, that comes back to just, uh, it's great to apply Bayes and show all these great results. But ultimately, we as Bayesians, in Bayesians United, we need to move it into the curriculum at a very, very early level. Ideally, either on par with classical methods, or maybe in the future, even supplanting it. Because it's quite clear, when you supplant it, when instead of teaching frequentist statistics, you would teach Bayesian statistics, within 10 years, the entire field would be Bayesian, right? the entire field of experimental psychology, because it's what's being taught, it's what you're supposed to do. And would we be worse off, would we be better off? Well, I'm actually not that sure. I think we would be better off on a sort of moral, from a kind of a moral perspective, because at least we're doing something that makes sense. But obviously, we wouldn't have changed the incentives in academia itself or the flaws that people have when they do research, such as uh, hindsight bias, cherry picking, those kinds of things. It's, of course, in statistics, it remains true garbage in, garbage out. So if you have unrepresentative data, you will draw an unrepresentative conclusion no matter how rational or coherent your inference methodology may be.
0: Concretely, how how do you think you're trying to help that with uh, JASP? So basically, yeah, like maybe yeah. tell people what JASP is about, why right. they would use that and when. Right. And also, yeah, like the maybe the future developments that you have in mind.
2: When we started to develop it, this was about 10 years ago, the original idea was uh, Bayesian SPSS. Mm -hmm. And then it was generalized to, I guess, what SPSS would have looked like if it had been done right. And this is, I I don't actually want to say too many bad things about SPSS because, because the idea that you have a graphical user interface is for many students a relief. I program in R, but whenever I have an analysis in JASP, I go to JASP because I can do it like a hundred times faster. I don't mm. have to look for my code. I don't have to look for how do I create a nice plot because everything is there already. And if you have a, something like a t-test and you do it over and over again, right? this just calls for making the procedure automatic, which is what JASP essentially does. All right, So it's mm. a graphical user interface on top of R for statistical analyses. And it offers classical analyses, but also machine learning, a range of other things. We even have auditing. We have worked with a company who switched to JASP. So we have quality control tools in there. But also, of course, a lot of Bayesian statistics. So the user can basically... So we introduced the classical statistics really only as a Trojan horse, right? So that when people executed classical t-test, they will actually see that underneath there, it says Bayesian (laughs) t-test. And then they think hmm, what would happen if I would press this button? And before you know it, they will be on a path towards Bayesianism. But essentially, oh, and I should also mention what we're also trying to do with JASP. We're trying to make it easier to teach Bayesian statistics. So we have, for instance, a module that is called Learn Bayes. Mm -hmm. And with Learn Bayes, you can teach students Bayesian statistics. And I use it myself in my workshops. And uh, so it was also kind of made to facilitate this and that works uh, for me that works really well so that's basically what it is and it I think it's tremendously powerful you can also use it to reanalyze published classical results so uh, in a Bayesian way I would encourage everybody to
0: give it a shot yeah I love especially if they don't know about the Bayesian stuff yeah. that's I love that Trojan horse yeah. strategy <laughs> okay EJ like you've been already very generous with your time so I'm gonna ask you one last question before the last two questions. This is my sneaky way of not ending the podcast. So yeah, like, because uh, we've talked a bit about that already, uh, model averaging. And so you've I know you've been working on, on Bayesian model averaging for meta-analysis lately. So may get, tell us a bit about that, because that's something also that will be new, I guess, for most listeners.
2: Yeah, the idea is quite straightforward. Mm-hmm. In meta-analysis, you usually have different models you can entertain. For instance, there can be an overall effect, Or there cannot be an overall effect. There can be heterogeneity, or maybe there is no heterogeneity. And then there can also be publication bias. And there's many models for publication bias. So how do we draw our inference when we don't really know the data generating process? So one method is to do a two-step process, where you first look at the data, you then select one of the models, and then you base all your inference on that single model. But if you do that, you kind of ignore the uncertainty inherent in the first step. Mm -hmm. So that will only work well if there's one clear winner and everything else is ruled out, basically. Mm -hmm. We rarely have that luxurious situation. So then what do we do if we have all these models into play? Well, the Bayesian answer is you average across them. So then you can say things like, well, there may be publication bias. The effect may or may not be present. But what do we know about heterogeneity? Taking all those possibilities into account at the same time. Right? So it basically means that models that predicted the data well have a relatively large impact on your inference, and models that predict poorly have a small impact. So this also means that your method is more robust because it doesn't depend on any single model. And if that single model is wrong, right, then you co- can draw a completely incorrect conclusion. But in the model averaging approach, you kind of mitigate that risk by keeping all models in play. And so this started out this as work again with Quinton uh, Gronau, but since then uh, Franticek Bartos and Maximilian Meyer have extended it to account for publication bias as well. So now our complete ensemble of models is something like 36 models. And we have shown by applications to real data and simulation studies that it actually Account that it, its performance across a range of conditions is actually uh, good and better than the individual models that are included in it, right? Because the individual models do well, but only when they are the data generating process. And if they're not the data generating process, they start to make many mistakes. And if you include all models and apply them simultaneously, you
0: don't have that problem. Yeah, I mean that's the one of the coolest things I I discovered when I started learning Bayesian statistics. Then, so like you're. Basically, doing a model is kind of integrating all the uncertainty around the whole process. Yeah. But then you can go one step further and integrate the uncertainty of all the models. Yeah, and it's like you know, kind of an inception step when you're like, yeah, new level. Yeah. Well, like you've got several models. Well, let's average them and integrate over the uncertainty over the choice of models. Yeah. this is incredible. Yeah, there's an early paper that
2: I had together with uh, Jeff Iverson and Michael Lee on the. There was a comment, I think, on the infamous p-rep mm-hmm. statistic. And we applied it there as well, but it uh, then it took a long time for me to get back to the idea. Mm. But I do think that, in, in general, that's so nice, right? Anytime you're confronted as a Bayesian with a situation, which model should we choose, right? The standard answer of a Bayesian should be, why choose, right? If there's uncertainty about them, we can just average Across these models. So you don't have, and in general, I think that's the difference between a Bayesian and a frequentist. A frequentist wants to maximize, just picks the best one, and a Bayesian averages. But of course, we all have a frequentist, almost all of us have a frequentist education. So there's some, this is also a point that Jeff Rauder makes occasionally. We all have these frequentist sort of these residues from a frequentist education so it may, we may still be tempted to like pick the maximum or something instead of averaging but i think averaging is, is what a bayesian would ideally do
0: yeah i understand my main question here would be how do you come up with 36 different models in the first place
2: that's really easy right because at every point in this tree the tree divides and you get uh, two to the power of n or something right so very quickly you get to a multitude of models and i think we could probably do much more but at some point of course the pr- procedure also becomes computationally yeah, yeah. Uh, intensive so we yeah, need yeah. This to sort of strike a balance uh, there
0: yeah actually that depends on what you call a different model i guess because like if if you just had to change some priors to call it a different model then yeah you easily get to at least 36 models in your workflow for sure it doesn't have to be like a completely different model with different likelihoods, right. different.
2: Well, you know, if you have, so you basically have different factors, right? So if you just have effect present, absent, heterogeneity, yes or no, yeah. publication bias, yes or no, then yeah. you already have eight, yeah. right? So you only need a few more of the, these these factors, and and you're quickly up to thirty-six. Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah. Okay, so like, uh, make sure to to add that uh, paper to the show notes also, because I think it will be. Uh, very interesting for, for listeners, because we've been very fast on that last question. I should actually probably do an episode where I dive a bit more into model averaging. I also actually think that the one of the other advantages here of a Bayesian
2: approach to, model, uh, to, to um, a meta-analysis is that you can keep adding new studies as they come in, which is so you can just learn as the data come in. Whereas mm-hmm. in a frequentist framework, it's always an uncomfortable feeling when you're done with your analysis, you've made your decision, and now a new study comes in completely mm. unannounced because you didn't have control over the sampling plan, right? So, boom, here's this other study. What do you do? Yeah. Basically, people just just ignore the, the sequential nature of the enterprise, but it is sequential. So, yeah. and this is not something
0: that bothers uh, should bother a Bayesian. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, that's definitely more natural. Right? Awesome. Well, EJ, I'm gonna going to set you free now. You've been prisoner for for too long. But of course, you know, to get on that freedom, I'm going to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve?
2: From basically consistent with our uh, conversation, I would say that the problem that I would try to solve is the problem that students are taught a parody of inference and that they perpetuate that parody in their own teaching and uh, how to do that is uh, well, the, well this is uh, this is difficult but I think we have uh, I think it's about the utilities so and utilities and incentives that's something that need to change because if you it's clear for everybody who's a Bayesian what the advantages are right it's just to make people who aren't yet Bayesians to convince them and I, I think it has to start from the ground up right at the f- very early, uh, levels of teaching. Hmm. So that's definitely something that I would like to change and it's actually also something why my interests have sh- are shifting now a little bit towards, uh, towards education mm-hmm. because I think it's so
0: so important. Yeah. No, yeah, for sure. I completely agree with that. And that's actually, so I was the guest in my own podcast on episode 57. <laughs> I think my answer to that question was uh, along education also, yeah. mainly around yeah, critical thinking and how do you make smart people not believe them things basically. Yeah. And that's something that really fascinates me. So second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? And keep in mind that answering me is a perfectly valid answer. <laughs> okay. Nobody picked me yet. I'm like, I'm like,
2: Yeah, but I think, you know, if you pick somebody who's, who's alive today, you're wasting an opportunity. <laughs> So you're already finding excuses. So it has to be somebody who is deceased. And then then the two obvious candidates are Laplace or Jeffries. Mm-hmm. But they both have really deep problems. Because I would think that anybody who has a dinner with Laplace
0: will quickly feel incredibly stupid yeah and unless you talk to him about like all the modern stuff that he doesn't yeah, know about. yeah 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 but the problem is as a physicist
2: and as an astronomer he would immediately want to know a lot more about physics and astronomy sure. And then i would have to tell him oh i don't know this i don't know this other thing right and he would like how can you not know you know <laughs> and, and like uh i would have to tell him like yeah it's it's really terrible that i don't know these these physics things that are about you know, our reality is so, so important, and, and I don't know all this stuff. And so he would, he would feel frustrated. What kind of idiot does he have dinner with? Couldn't I mean, he's back on Earth for one day. Couldn't they have given him a physicist to have dinner with or something?
0: Well, it's your choice. You know, it's not his. his yeah, yeah, yeah. It. But I think he would
2: find it difficult to contain his frustration. So maybe that wouldn't make for a good dinner. Although he would be pleased, I think, to see that, that Bayesian inference is yeah. still, uh, you know, doing
0: so well today. Yeah, yeah, probably. And I think you can, like, he doesn't know what an AirPod is and what an iPhone is. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. So you can, like, have one in your ear, have a physicist friend live, like, he can answer the question for you and you just, like, parrot. Or, of course, we could just Google it. Right. Of if I'm have my yeah. cell phone...
2: Yeah, that would okay. take more time. And then with the cell phone, but then Laplace would probably just take the cell phone yeah, exactly. and spend the entire <laughs> dinner just yeah, Googling
0: it, Yeah, it's too yeah. obvious, and it would take too much time. Like it would be like, Yeah. So, yeah. very good question, Pierre-Simon. Just give me five minutes, I have to check some. <laughs> okay, so perfect. I think we have the perfect strategy to have dinner with Laplace without looking like fools. Awesome. I think so. The other one is Harold Jeffries, but the
2: problem there is that Jeffries was... Known for basically not speaking very much, oh. so the dinner would be very awkward. <laughs> so, and I think that problem is not easily solved with an uh, no. w- uh, with a cell phone. So, <laughs> so maybe that sells it, and I should just go with Laplace. Yeah. I'll go with Laplace.
0: Yeah, go with Laplace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, EJ, thanks a lot. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. We I'm really glad because we covered a lot of, of topics that we didn't cover a lot yet on the, on the podcast. So uh, more diversity. We explored more of the typical set of the Bayesian world. So I'm very pleased. I personally learned a lot. I hope it was the same for listeners. As usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper, and there will be the, the different papers uh, we mentioned. So thank you again, EJ, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank
2: you very much. It was my pleasure.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, come back anytime once you have cracked how to solve uh, conspiracy theories. Okay. Great. This has been another episode of Learning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or podchaser, and visit LearnBasedStats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's LearnBasedStats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at BabaBrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alexandora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a
1: good basie and change your predictions after taking information. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.